were so annoyed about what happened yeah, yeah. in the Liga. Steve Jobs and but, but, the, but the thing is, it's fascinating, no, isn't it? Apart we're all European football yeah. finals, yeah, yeah, apart yeah. from Chinch, who doesn't like football. I love the, football. The, um, I, soccer, I tend to call it. Yeah, well, good. That's what my dad calls it. Soccer. soccer. Yeah. Yeah. I, carry on. We, we, we don't want to have this debate again. No, we can probably use it from this from this point on. I continue... You I don't probably know, don't might, need to say it. I just naturally feel like it. The... I quite often get, um, as you know, people saying uh, you, it's football, not soccer. That's always the first response to anything I write. Which I find very Twitter. annoying. I find it intensely annoying. But We have had this conversation my, before. Yeah. My yeah. argument is... Uh, Those people are all quite, quite right, by the way. Officially, it's association Do you know what? I think, it's, I think it's Irish. I think that might be where it comes from. I had this I had a sort of a, an epiphany, a light bulb moment, that it might be an Irish thing to separate it from gar. Uh, Gaelic well, football. Yeah. Gah. Yeah, okay, I thought you Gaelic meant lady. Uh, athletic Association. <laughs> Gah. Um, the, well, I don't know where who, who originally abbreviated association to soccer, but it certainly wasn't the Yanks. Do you think that people, the people who work at Soccer AM, like the, who runs, the people who run the social <laughs> media feed at Soccer AM, constantly as soon as they say Soccer AM's on now, that someone comes back and says it's Football AM, actually. That's, 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 that's just their timeline, <laughs> is people cor- correcting them. That's well, why they've got so many followers. It's the disgruntled people who want to correct them who follow Soccer Gillette AM. Gillette Soccer Twitter Saturday, feed. Jeff Stelling did one of those people. Actually, it's Gillette Football Saturday, Jeff. <laughs> yes, I think you find that alliteration is secondary to the importance of getting it right. World Soccer. No. It's the other one. World Football. It's not called World Soccer, that magazine. It's not a British magazine. Do you think, no, you know, that, the, the comedian Richard Herring, who every yes. time it's um, International Women's Day, yes. trawls through Twitter correcting all the men who are asking, when's International Men's Day? And he tells them what date International Men's Day is. March then something? No, 19th or th- It's either my mum's or my sister's birthday. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. How ironic. Yeah. So, uh, I don't yeah, celebrate do, them either. Do you think there's people out there on in, in the Twitter sphere who simply just go around correcting use of soccer? I think that, that's, that I would say there are. I yeah, would but, say but, that. but in attempting to what they think is correct, they are actually being incorrect. They're exposing their own massive ignorance. Yes. Yeah. Which is... I think it's basically Twitter, isn't it? <laughs> that's basically, basically that's sort of eighty percent Twitter is people exposing their the whole yeah. time. Yeah. Certainly eighty percent of my Twitter and mine, absolutely. Not chinches though. I, no, I, I just simply refuse to do it. <laughs> you could say chinch. No, please. You've offered set you've up offered a Twitter many account. Times. You have so much to offer the world. I think people would rather say save it up for the occasional Monday night football chinch. Mm, maybe. Which that went yeah. down rather yes, well. Well in done. In the Twitter sphere. Did it? It did. Yeah. People kept referring to you as set piece menus Andy Hinchcliffe. That's <laughs> excellent, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's, I like that. I like that. I, I like the like fact that, that what every, everything else you've done into your, in your career up until the point which qualified you to become a football pundit is yes. now rendered irrelevant and now you're simply set yes. piece menus Andy I'm, Andy I'm happy about that. I'll take that. I think that's yeah. the, sort of, the sort of brand awareness that you need and we need, to be honest. Yes. Yeah. That's should tattoo it on my forehead. I mean, ideally... So it would you've be not got yes. much space left for any other tattoo. <laughs> not on well, my head I have. <laughs> yes, quite a big head. Should we all get SPM tattoos? <laughs> should we? All we our faces. All of our faces. All our faces on, apart from Hughes, he's horrible. What? That's true. Well, we yeah. could we could each have like like a weird code where one of us has S, one of us has P, one of us has M, and I'll just sit down. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could each get a buffalo. Yes, That's a, a buffalo. Night. Buffalo, I like buffaloes. They're excellent, aren't they? Really tasty. Where would you put it if we can't put it on your forehead? Because as Steve says, there aren't too many spaces. A buffalo. Yes. Um, I don't. Uh, oh no. Chinch is now looking at. I himself. don't want to go lower limbs. Is that right? I, I don't believe because there's been enough surgery down lamp. there. There has, <laughs> but I, I'm not a big believer in in leg and buttock tattoos. Why not? I just I don't know. Uh, are many Call me crazy. Have you got a body fine? Have you got a tramp stamp? Have I got a tramp stamp? Why? No, of course I have. Why would I have one? <laughs> I don't know. Why would I have one? 
You've got a lot of tattoos. You look yes. like the sort of man who might have a tramp stamp. <laughs> what kind of man is that, exactly? A forward-thinking, open-minded man. Also a tramp With stamp. a tramp stamp. <laughs> With a tramp stamp. <laughs> Can we move on, please? This is awful. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. And welcome to episode 101. Yeah, oh. uh, yes, we've been promising Have a we... grand extravaganza to celebrate our 100th episode. And because of all your excellent suggestions, and they are so excellent, they take way more time than we have to even consider, let alone put into place, that mystical episode will remain a future episode as yet undecided future episode and once we're organized enough to do something special we'll call it our 100th episode so here is episode 101 just to keep us going and to keep the anticipation the extraordinary anticipation going i consider it like um that wonderful period leading up to christmas without actually having christmas to ruin it mm-hmm. so that's uh, that unfulfilled but also uh, a lengthy uh, enjoyment period. The equivalent of never having to see the Boxing Day sales adverts. You know that real letdown oh. when you realise that during the James Bond movie on ITV that Christmas must be over because DFS is open yeah. for Boxing Day The last sales. thing you want to buy is a sofa. Mm. So this episode is basically the leftover turkey sandwiches without having to have gone through the process of cooking the turkey in the, fr- in the, the process. The exact opposite. This is the anticipation of what might be on Christmas without ever having to have the turkey and then the turkey sandwich. It's like the best kind of purgatory. Boxing Day is my favourite bit of Christmas because I get to go to a football match and not oh. be with my family anymore. <laughs> but take your turkey sandwiches with you. No. I always do that. I do always you? Absolutely, yes. My turkey and stuffy sandwiches go with me to wherever. I'm not actually working this year, which is you not a surprise. No. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I love taking Are the, we all uh, having Christmas together? No, we're not. No. Don't, no, don't invite yourselves around. I thought that was a plan. Not happening. Yeah. I thought that was a plan. No. Nick, Nicky was cooking I am pagan. What? <laughs> You're pagan. Pagan. You're yes. pagan. Yes. Well, we're recording this on Halloween, so this is I your day of the year. Yeah, I built a bonfire in the back garden. I'm going to take all my clothes off, paint myself green. <laughs> And, and tattoo Woad. SPM. You some Woad, You have to refuse being a paid and with being a pervert. <laughs> Thin line between. Uh, well, uh, at least we've got past that and we're all agreed on what the episode 101 means to each and every one of us. Uh, we are celebrating episode 101 with food which is yet to appear, which is kind of in constituent parts, both on the side, um, in the fridge, and on a very bare, bare chopping board. Hang on. So you're telling me that for lunch we are having some bagels, some Robinson squash and some pickles? Does that yes. sound terrible? And also, out of your line of sight is a bag of Mowims. At least one bag of Mowims. Yes, Halloween, so that's for the kids. Yeah, we've also got the, I think we have the same bag of Mowims. Because it was yeah. half price. Have you got a pumpkin to put outside? No, no. I know that that's, that's the, the, the sign. Thing. That's the sign. Like, so. ha- like pampas grass for swingers. <laughs> 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 or chinch running around naked around a bonfire. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you'll notice that there's a very small amount of chocolate and sweets because we don't expect that many people yeah. to come around because we haven't got a pumpkin. And uh, the bagels will be filled with one of three choices. Um, beef, roast top side of beef. Mm, nice. Um, turkey Swiss, because mm-hmm. that's, you know, traditional. Um, and smoked salmon and cream cheese. Could you have all three on one yeah, bagel? Combination. I'd like to see you try that. What are we going to call that? more than one bagel that allows you to spread it out thinly okay. as you like. Um, so joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Rory Smith of New York Times fame, commentator Steve Wyeth of BBC BT Sport and now 11 Sports fame, <laughs> and Andy Hinchcliffe of the 1984 William Hume Grammar School production of Fame. Really? Yes, your voice hadn't broken, so you did a brilliant Irene Cara. Oh, yeah, I did. Great at welding as well. Or something else? <laughs> Get in touch with the podcast I'm lost. via at setpiecemenu. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. And you can also continue the conversation on Facebook. Just search setpiecemenu. Incidentally, atavelding is now a word that's likely to be on the shortlist for those seeking to be added to the dictionary this year. Oh, brilliant. Uh, such is the um, increasing influence it has on mm. society. Uh, Carl Carpenter is the latest to have to explain to a friend why he's using the word to describe somebody else. 
although that might not be a friend anymore. Uh, we also continue to receive some great emails about who you support and why, and perhaps as pertains to episodes 96 and 97, why it's not your local or inherited team. So let's start our correspondence section of the show with Dean Brookman, who writes this. Good morning, all, Rory and others, which seems to cater for everybody. Uh, my name is Dean I'm a West Country lad, so immediately gets on the show. Uh, family are lifelong Bristol Rovers fans. My first match day experience was on a, t- a terrace at the legendary Turton Park. And then he says, up the gas. Up the gas. Surprisingly, though, I'm an Arsenal fan. And he oh. has in brackets, exclamation mark. Uh, but maybe my journey to being one isn't particularly simple. My granddad always claimed he scored over 1,000 goals for Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> a bold claim. <laughs> And as a young football fan of the age of four, that, quite frankly, was astonishing. (laughs) Who is this man? Asked Dean. How did he do this? When I grew older and slightly more aware, I found out that Cliff Baston was actually the record goalscorer for Arsenal. So I questioned my granddad and he told me that he had, in fact, scored them all before the war. So there were no records. Pre which war? I asked that doesn't matter, he said. Vietnam. It started a, <laughs> started a love for a club to which I have nothing other than the fleeting memory from uh, when I was a child. Uh, does anyone else have a, such a spurious connection to a club that's created a love so strong? I hope so. His dad's his granddad's name was Don Bowles. Oh, uh, Bowlesy. Bowlesy. Yeah, he was prolific. No Bowlesy. relation to Stan. Um, nothing on Google. You to put Don Bowles and Arsenal in, nothing on Google, although Dean did admit writing the email at 1am, so I'm not entirely sure we can trust everything he says. Don Bowles does sound like a pre-war mm. goal-scoring machine for Arsenal. But the thing that the great, the great sadness to that hilarious story is that Bristol Rovers, the Dias, have the greatest badge in football. How can you turn your back on that? I wish I, saw, I, I, wish I was a Bristol Rovers fan. It is the best badge. I've done a lot of badge stuff recently on this show. The Bristol Rovers badge has got a pirate on it. Nice. It has. Yeah. They are indeed yeah. the pirates. They're the gas. <laughs> Sorry. The gas the pirates. Natural gas. Natural gas. They're very natural. I lo- Bristol Rovers are a club I've got a huge amount of time for. Love Bristol Rovers. So explain that. I should know, but I don't know. The gas. Uh, because the stadium, the, the memorial ground, I think, it, I think it was, was by a great one of those great big gas oh, okay. things. Okay. What like do you call the them? Kennington Oval yes. yeah. for cricket. Yeah. And what also like them? the Etihad Stadium. Yes. It's, it's, one of those, yeah. it's one of those words that their rivals from Bristol City uses mm. a derogatory term and Bristol Rovers fans simply embrace it and it doesn't bother them. There's a lot of rivalry Have they reclaimed the gas? Oh, yes, There's a big rivalry Bristol that City. <laughs> Bristol. I, never, I never knew that. Is that right? Yes. City Rovers is, is I would say, up there with Rangers Celtic. Seriously? In terms of how much they appear to hate each other. Wow. My uh, uh, friend of mine from university, uh, Steve Haynes. Hello, Steve. No chance whatsoever he listens. Are you still um, friends now? Uh, no. Nobody, I would be able to strike it up, I would imagine. Okay. Um, he's, he's very high up in Why some government quango. Why haven't you? Um, because I'm incredibly lazy and don't really like other people that much. Um, also, I got married to avoid having to talk to mm. other people yes. that weren't my wife. Good um, and he was the first person 20 years ago to to, to tell me that um, my old man said be a Rovers fan and he said yes and you can get the rest. Um, Carmen, but he said, he said it and he was from Bedminster. Bedminster. And he did it in the most wonderful Bristolian accent, and it sounds fantastic. I do quite a good Bristolian accent, but I'm not going to do it now for fear that I will not live up to my own billing. <laughs> Just going back to Don Bolzer, the big giveaway was the thousand goals. Yeah, like, if yeah. he'd said three, four hundred, yeah, then we're talking <laughs> a thousand. I know he's four years old at this time, but a thousand goals. Pele, I think, scored over a thousand goals. Yeah, yes, but most Pele of that, did not play for Arsenal. <laughs> That's total nonsense that Pele scored a thousand goals as well. Is it though? Yeah. He, he counted the same as Romario, it, counted it, tappins in his back garden. Yes, exactly. It counts goals that you score in a painted goal in your 
local street. So you're basically dissing Pele's goal-scoring record. Yes, I think is this so, what we're doing I here? That's the thing. Stephen? The, the memory <laughs> of a beloved relative is a really good reason for supporting a yes. football team because mm. it keeps that memory alive. But what the was fact if they're that a that, filthy liar? Yeah, the, the fact that that memory is of him being a pathological liar <laughs> is obviously ever so slightly muddies the well, water. No, my, my auntie was a pathological liar and she's dead now, so I'm allowed to say that. The, um, and if anything, it made me more fond of her. Yeah, well, there you go. You had to Did she support Arsenal as well? She scored a thousand <laughs> goals for them. Very obvious. <laughs> At the very least. And, enormous, and enormous her name was Don Bowles. <laughs> I'm still Maureen. She's enormously fat. Yeah. Carmen has got in touch. Following Rory's comment about the questionable naming of Melbourne Victory, <coughs> yes. you may all remember from a couple of weeks ago, as a Melbourne Victory <coughs> supporter, I would like to defend the name. Prior to the A-League, the former soccer league, the NSL, was rather shambolic. With a lack of funding, structure and governance, there was a proposal for a new league to be set up. The former team's representative of Victoria were infamous for being insular and not particularly open to fans of the wider public. In order to set up a football team that would be open to all Victorians, as Melbourne is a city of the state of Victoria, Carmen helpfully says to all those people, probably including some of us who didn't know that, the name Melbourne Victory was selected. Whilst the awkwardness of the name is often debated, after all, what even is a victory? Which slightly philosophical for this point of the conversation. After 13 years, Melbourne Victory has become rather endearing to the fans. Um, as a side note, says Carmen, previously mentioned Atterveld contender Kevin Muscat is now the Melbourne Victory manager. Is he? Well, we shouldn't insult them because he'll break both our legs. <laughs> he will. He will start a sliding challenge from at least 15 yards away and go in with both feet. So that's from Carmen. Uh, this whole Melbourne Victory thing, by the way, was started by Karen Damager, who uh, just wanted to say in response to last week's episode about young British managers, that as Eddie Howe looks German, perhaps if he just added a couple of umlauts to his name, he might get a top six job. So Premier League elite, meet Eddie Hoover. Hoover. Yeah. Yeah. Eddie Hoover. That would work, yeah. And we've also had a couple of people pointing out that how similar, bearing in mind that a couple of Melbourne Victory fans are also Arsenal fans, uh, certainly those that have corresponded with the podcast, that the Melbourne Victory and Arsenal font on their badge is exactly the same. Oh, interesting. Subliminal. Could be. Subliminal. Is it Ariel Bold? Subliminal. No. <laughs> no. Which, te- which, team, has, which team has the most extraordinary name in world football? Can you think anything of Hearts of Oak. Hearts of Oak? Yeah, Ghanaian. I think they're Ghanaian. Someone doodle it. Ghanaian. Do you, feel, do you feel like this is a conversation Powerhouse. that we might need No, I just wonder with Melbourne Victory talking about, I just wondered... Some of the Indian clubs have uh, kind of when interesting I li- names, when don't I, they? Pune FC, when crazy. I, when I lived in Bolivia... Was the FC stuff? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I supported Bolivar rather than their rivals, the strongest, because they readily finished me. The strongest? Yeah, they just told the strongest, but they readily finished my table. <laughs> <laughs> Nonsense. The, um, that was like the, the, the existential issue that Melbourne Victory might have on a match day where they don't there's win. Loads, there's loads of... Really, there's, there's a lot of really well-named African teams. Hearts You're not going to inspire youngsters to, to join your club by saying we're above average. Oh, are not you? only are Hearts of Oak a brilliant name, Hearts they've got Oak. a brilliant kit. That is insane. Let's have a look. Good, let's have a look. We are Googling. That's an extraordinary Live kit. Googling on a podcast. That is, that is this, that's yellow, red, and two shades of blue vertical stripes on their shirt. And they are from Ghana, by the way. It does look look like a test card. And they are from Ghana. Well done, me. Interesting football names to setpiecemenu at gmail.com, at setpiecemenu, or facebook.com forward slash setpiecemenu. I feel as though Nigeria might be a quite rich theme for this conversation. Some great footballers' names, Nigerian footballers. Yeah, but I think the clubs have got great names as well. Let's open this up to our uh, viewing public, all ten of them. Uh, viewing public. <laughs> yes, a lot exactly. of them in, a lot of them in Melbourne. Listening public. The viewing public Apologies. are currently the people who can see through my uh, living room window. So there might be 10 of them. Must be very tall. Hopefully the listening public numbers slightly more. Yes. When are you doing your Savo Milosevic story? Because <laughs> Maria Ganner at Sky is massively interested in what this story is all about. And I don't think it's a great story, is it? But she said, what's the story? What's the story, Rory? It's a great story. She's waiting for it. Is, it's with, in anticipation. 
Oh, have we done it yet? It, we haven't done it. It depends. If if you're really interested in Sava Milosevic, yeah, it's not that great. Well, she's a Villa fan, you see, so that's why. If you're interested in the in, in Rory Smith, in my my <laughs> personal background, then it's fascinating. Oh, I'd, I'd I'd leave it then. Yeah. Right then, let's crack on with our 101st episode subject. It's a what if conversation. Like, for example, what if the Seppi's menu team could get their backsides in gear and actually organise something for their 100th episode when it was actually the week of their 100th episode. Just an example. Um, We are not going to answer that one, though. This is a kind of opposite of what happened next, a what would have happened next at certain points in football history if a crucial decision, a significant moment, had actually gone the other way. This subject was suggested by our old friend and writer Sanchetti, who I was talking to the other day, and pretty much every time I talk to him, he suggests a topic. So I promised I would actually get this one on at some point. So then, what would have happened next if... I am actually going to suggest three sensible examples. Uh, we may or may not get to them during our conversation, but just to put the idea in people's like minds. Sli- is it sliding doors? The sliding, sliding, sliding doors, doors. moments. So Absolutely, yes, very okay, good. Okay. Do you Gwyneth Paltrow will not play any part no, in this Oh, that's conversation. a shame. She's a decent... Uh, a decent striker. <laughs> the, um, it's amazing, Sliding Doors, because everyone refers to the film Sliding Doors, but it isn't. It is objectively an awful film, but it seems to have this massive cultural cachet that fascinates me. Did the phrase exist before the film? I don't know. Wasn't it? Mm. Let if us not, know. If not, it's pretty. <laughs> no, I think, no I, we, had, we had we had we had we had sliding doors, but they were patio doors. They weren't sliding doors. A patio we doors, called them patio doors. A patio doors moment is different. That's when someone breaks into your house. <laughs> yes, but they they were patio doors. We didn't call them sliding doors. Or you they, find they, a dead bird on the doorstep. <laughs> My brother had a patio doors moment. He we were playing it when we were like. Eight. Is this Neil? Who's better this than you? This is Neil. Who's yeah. better than me in everything? So someone was a killer cloud with a balloon. He, um, <laughs> you were playing it. Yeah, there we were. Nice. Just before that TV movie was made. Yes. In nineteen ninety ninety, it was a two-part TV movie. Was it? Yeah, originally. Well, obviously it was a book. You think we're getting off topic? It, here, interesting fact is that's why I'm that's never clowns. happened before. <laughs> is that why you're scared I'm terrified of, of clowns? I can understand, and I can understand that completely. Anyway, so we were playing a game in on holiday, and he thought that the door was open. It wasn't. He ran through it and injured himself horrifically. Uh, but so went on to have a much more successful but, but life. But then he, 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 he out of adversity, recovered in out of adversity came a much more. We successful had an owl that flew into our patio door. It was enormous. It massive. Pang! And an owl concussed. On the, you're not going to pick it up and touch it with its talons and have your face off. And eventually it recovered and flew away, but it's a massive big thing. Was this recently? No, years ago. W- were you being perhaps summoned to Hogwarts? No, I was <laughs> Actually, yes. That would make sense with my commentating wizardry. Oh, oh my God. I knew my mum should have let me out from underneath the stairs. I knew it. You may well remember a few minutes ago I suggested that I would give some sensible examples. Sorry. Yes, you did, yes. Here they are. What if... David Beckham hadn't scored from the halfway line. What if England hadn't won the World Cup in 1966? And what if Andy Hinchcliffe had had self-belief and functioning knees? All of which may well be discussed, but may not. Can't we just do what if David Beckham hadn't? Yeah. Yeah, what if David Beckham hadn't? Only because he refers to that as his sliding doors moment, and that does he really, or do you just put words in his mouth? No, he that's act- he used well, the word sliding doors. No. He noticed that everything changed for him after that moment. So this is a, the 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 biggest footballing global icon that wasn't Ronaldo or Messi. Yeah, um, the biggest originally e- English speaking. Can I say that? Is that fair? Mm-hmm. English speaking global icon certainly come out of England over the last. 20, 30 years, and that was the moment that catapulted him. So what if he hadn't? What if it had gone wide or Neil Sullivan hadn't fallen over chasing back and had tipped it over the bar? I'm inclined to say that Beckham was sufficiently talented and particularly yeah. hard-working that he would have 
Did that define him? It, uh, I don't know if it did. I think the free kick against Greece probably defined yes, him. Yes, yeah, I was going to say he, that. But yeah. he entered the mainstream yeah, with he did. that goal. I, wonder, I don't think it would have affected his career. I think he would still have gone on to have a rich and successful career, obviously. Um, but I don't know if he would maybe have had quite quite the, that immediate cultural impact that he did in the late nineties when you know the when he became kind of a fashion icon. He was symbolic of the new Manchester United. He he transcended sport and became a public figure. That that all, all of that happened prior to the goal in two thousand and one against. It Greece. did, and I think and yeah, I think to an extent the story from the halfway line probably did. It, it maybe accelerated it, but Beckham was a brilliant footballer. He was extremely good looking. Uh, it, all of that stuff would still have happened whether he scored or not. It's just maybe that gave it the the quick kick start. And the other thing to remember that was the summer of '96. It's two years, only two years, until he kicks the Edo Simeone, which I would say is the other kind of defining moment of his career. The Nadir rather than the yeah. Zenith. So he had <laughs> a relatively short period of time. I don't think would have, I don't think you could say if he'd not scored from the halfway line, Beckham would have gone on loan to Luton and then disappeared into obscurity. I think he would have continued to be pretty much the same player, but it's just that that scoring from the halfway line has such cachet f- for fans that it may be, yeah, it made everything a lot quicker, it made everything a lot louder for Beckham immediately, but I think he would still have been David Beckham. Mm. I just wonder whether that the sending off was the more defining moment, as you say, because you think about Gaza. Well, of all the brilliant things that Paul Gascoigne did on the football pitch during his career, the yellow card in the World Cup semi-final in mm. 1990 yeah. is still the image that immediately jumps to your mind. So it's the negatives well, well, rather than Gary actually, Charles. Found, found, yeah, found Gary Charles yeah. doing his name. Yeah. So it's actually the negatives that if that hadn't happened... What, what would have come off the back of it? We're talking about a positive here, a wonderful goal from well, David Beckham, but it didn't actually change. Yeah. If Gaza hadn't got that yellow card yeah. in the semi-final, England would still have lost to Germany on penalties. <laughs> yes, very possibly. But, but we'll never know! But the, the, the red card in 1998 was so significant because of the two years that had preceded it. Yes. He crashed from a great height. In crashing from not so much of a great height, it wouldn't have been so much of a big deal and he wouldn't have been the scapegoat and he wouldn't have have effigies being burnt and people being hung or you know likenesses being hung from outside pubs did that goal do David Beckham any favours or in, in his own mind did it change the way that he maybe did things He's, again his talent absolutely undoubted would have had a great career but that a goal of that type okay, you've got to be great enough and good enough to score a goal of that time but did it maybe change how he saw himself and the way he maybe conducted himself well, I don't know because it was only after well I don't know did Ferdy not start to object to his kind of pop starification yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. Yes, later. But what, when that moment happened, Fergie famously told him to not speak to anybody afterwards um, because he knew that a young player like David Beckham wasn't ready yeah. for being a public-facing figure. So he said, no speaking to match of the day, no speaking to anybody. You do not say an effing word to any effing person. And so he was withdrawn, and that was one of Fergie's man manage- management techniques for young players to make sure they don't or to try and mitigate the big-headedness that might come if you're suddenly not only in the public sphere, but you're being customer-facing, yeah, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. So that was already at that point, Fergie was aware of, of something that might come, but he only married Victoria, I think, in 1998, yeah. so there was still a couple of years before... Fergie, he, yeah, it w- it was became a big deal, and of course he only left in two thousand and three. I, d- I don't think he d- I know what you mean by it didn't do him any favors, and it probably didn't help in the immediate aftermath in terms of the pressure that the spotlight was suddenly on. But he but he seemed to enjoy. But it's he like did. Ronaldo; he seems yeah. to enjoy being the set way the way that he pl- played against him many times as well. And I just wondered whether you, your body language, the way you realise that after doing something like that, people are, if there's a twenty two players, they're going to be looking at you. 
So the way that you maybe conduct yourself, the way that you carry on, the way that you look, you ha everything, again, you're, you're realising you're actually the, the focal point of people's attention. So that, again, it didn't necessarily detract from, well, from his game you at all, at, you but you realised what, what, what he meant to people. You look at the career he had, mm. it's, I doubt he does much cause for himself any regrets. It maybe, no. it maybe would have allowed him a little bit more time to grow away from the public eye if he hadn't scored that goal, but it didn't, it didn't do him any harm. Did I it? presumably enjoyed it, Yeah, because you could easily step away from that. So basically, suppose, I think yeah. what we're yeah. saying is everything would have been exactly the same. Well, that's yeah. an excellent uh, first consideration of there a sliding is, doors moment. There is a more, I think there's a better Man United sliding doors moment, uh, which is what if Eric Cantona hadn't signed from Leeds? Which he did in uh, 1992. Yeah. Um, so for £1.2 million, I think it was. Cantona comes to Leeds in January 92. Having had a brief trial at Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday, Wednesday yeah. uh, wins them the title. Despite actually only he, he sort of only played in two games or something and scored 40, 46. If you look at his actual numerical impact on Leeds that season, it is zero, basically. But he inspired them to win the title, the last ever First Division title. Then Howard Wilkinson calls Ferdy, hoping to sign, I think, Dennis Irwin. Yeah, it, it was Dennis, Dennis Irwin, Irwin, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and Ferdy says, Because he couldn't no. find a left-back anywhere else? No. <laughs> Uh, we well, tried to get yeah. one, but uh, the M60 was rebuffed. Did, did there was Will a dearth of left back talent across the M62 yeah. corridor. Hang on, yeah, yeah. We've just found out. I did. That uh, yeah, there was. The, yeah, they tried to sign me. Yeah, that Chinch when could have changed the course of history. So hang what on. if? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, this, this is, is oh my god! Imagine this is the actual sliding ah! doors moment. Oh this, is the, know, this is the moment. That, so we need to let's contextualise this. What if Chinch, Chinch hadn't told us that? <laughs> yeah, this episode would have been terrible. Chinch, when did Leeds try and sign you? Not Leeds. United. Oh right, United. United. Yeah, okay. Yes, because they were when I first started. Yeah, there was Liverpool under Dougleish and uh, slightly less of a United. moment. Yeah, United tried. <laughs> well, so it whether might so have spared Liverpool, David Borough. Yeah, they wouldn't have been then subjected to the horror of having Dennis Irwin play so consistently well for twenty-five years. So if did hang on, did, this, this might change. I might I might be less excited than I was. Yes, no, I no, think I think I, this is I think this has still got potential. <laughs> did they s yeah. try and sign you before they signed Irwin? Uh, well, when would it have been? Yeah, I clearly yes. started before Dennis, wouldn't I? Yeah. So I was, when did I first? 86, 87, I first started playing. So we're probably looking around they late 80s. Dennis when did Dennis Irwin join? from Alden, I think, I think it'd be similar time. Well, if yeah. you're looking at top-notch left-backs in the northwest, there's only myself and... Uh, 1990. Ah, oh, well, there you go. So I moved to Everton. There so you go. Yes, yeah, so there we go. Yeah, well, this let's got let's restate this. This has got. <laughs> I think we're overdoing it here slightly. We're not. I, we are. We're overdoing it. So here. Andy Hinchcliffe, Manchester City prodigy. City accept the offer from Manchester United. Andy Hinchcliffe spends ten glorious years at Old Trafford. Except Howard Wilkinson doesn't like Andy Hinchcliffe because Andy Hinchcliffe reads books. Never picks up the phone to. So Ferdy. never picks up the phone to Ferdy. So Ferdy never asks for Cantona. Wow. That is a massive sliding door, isn't it? That really, that that would have been. That's the kind of sliding door, Chinch, you would run into and hit your head. So yeah. I've never realised my importance to the English game. I would say you are culturally the most significant figure in English. And it just came out like that. I didn't even realise how important no. it was. Just there you go. And that's, have that. That's why you. That's why we love you. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you that's go. why I love myself. Uh, anyway, it, back to the original point about yes. Eric Cantona. You can, yeah, yeah, yeah. You no. can make a case that without Cantona, Manchester United would not have turned into the empire that it did in the early nineties. Is that fair? Yep. Was he the Jenga piece as opposed to the sliding door? Well, in fact, <laughs> I think Cantona's legacy is probably greater than that. So not only does he inspire that side with, you know, with, with people like Ince and Kinchelstius and, and that great team, that, that first great there were team. Galvani there were other galvanising yeah. influences, but he was the, 
the, the artistic yeah. pulling together so of the whole okay, thing. What, is it the creative as well, part, and what yeah, United yeah. were seen as. Oh, well, also the, it was that arrogance. It was the collar up. Yeah. It was his. It was the chip against Sunderland. It was the, the way he played, mm. trying to fulfil. When this isn't this isn't meant to be an insult, but made Manchester United what Manchester United fans think Manchester United is. Yeah. And it was this kind of I am better than you. I am here. I'm Eric Cantona, and I'm the best player in the country. And that. I, you can make the case certainly that United would still have won titles just the rest of the team was good enough to win titles. They should have won it in 92. But the rest of the team was good enough to win titles without Cantona. But whether they'd have had all of that, I think that Cantona won three or four leads, I think, that whether they'd have been the dominant force in that mid-90s period or not. And the other thing is, if you speak to any member of the class of 92, they will tell you how much of an influence Cantona was on them, both in his actions and in his words. So you can make a case definitely that Cantona is obviously not as responsible as Ferdy for United's success in the 90s, but probably second behind him. Mm. So without him, if he stays at Leeds, United never become the dominant force in the way they were dominant. And perhaps Leeds have... Well, no, in fact, Leeds would have fallen apart because the entire dressing room hated him. Hated Eric Cantona or hated Howard Wilkinson? Hated... I, I, I don't think... Hate's probably too strong. I'm not sure Cantona was a popular figure right, at Leeds. Okay. So I think... Which is why Wilkinson was willing to sell him when Ferdy asked. So in terms of individuals going to clubs and having the impact that Cantona did at United, is there many... Can we think of any others that would have such a huge... And it wasn't just, again, it's how he played the game mm. and how he elevated United into, and what their fans thought of what their club should be all about. So that's culturally, that is it's huge, isn't it? Is there, I, I, is there any comparison? I would say Cantona's probably the most significant individual signing in that sense wow. of, of my lifetime. Is it as significant as the fact that uh, my dishwasher is beeping to tell me that it has completed its cycle? It, I'd say arguably more. Really? I think we can survive that, can't we? we can, no one's going to object to a couple of beeps. No, no, no. I'm going to completely keep noise. it in. Proof yes. we're not in a studio. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think whether you empty the dishwasher now or after we've left is going to change the course of footballing history in quite the same way. But well, do we agree that that is a proper slide? Yeah. Canton yes. United is a proper... Yeah. If that doesn't happen, things change. And, and, and Chinch, Steve, Chinch is a point, bit part your player. Point, in yeah. it. Your point is arguable about the dishwasher. Hit, but let's imagine Hinchcliffe and Cantona. <laughs> We, we could have taken over the world, really, couldn't we? Absolutely. Do you yeah. think you would have got on with Eric Cantona? You're both mavericks. I got on with Paolo Di Canio. I can get on with most people. <laughs> did you play against Cantona? Yes, I did. Do you, what, do you have any, any memories? Yes, he was really big. And he was, was he? really good at football. Yes. He couldn't get the ball off him. And when he, and he had the ball at his feet, invariably, he'd make a really good pass or score. And defensively, <laughs> that's really hard to deal with. No, he was. He was, he was great. That's but the, the collars, of, I was fascinated by the collars. Yeah. I'd love to have been that did, cool to wear my ever, collars up. Did you ever exchange what the French call badinage with him on the pitch? No. No, no I think he just pushed me over, ran over me and scored. Was so, he very you know, big? He was, he was huge. You yes. don't think of that with Cantona, do you? Uh, Beckham's tall as well. That's the thing about... And uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, yeah. very tall yeah, as well. Three, but no, Cantona was wide as well as tall. He was, okay. he was physical. But again, you couldn't knock him off the ball. You couldn't get the ball off him because he was technically so good, but he was strong, really. And again, mentally, incredibly strong. But the collars, look, I love those collars. The reason that one of the three that I mentioned at the beginning um, was about the World Cup in 1966 is because Rory has mentioned it in his book and also, albeit passingly, is well, funnily, funnily enough, you, I know the answer to this question. Well, exactly. Uh, so I wanted to at least spend part of the programme uh, talking historically and a little bit further back because it was an incredibly significant moment because had they not won the World Cup in 1966... They would have won more World Cup since. There we go. This is this is the what-if-Azerbaijani linesman had better eyesight yes. qu- question, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's quite right. So what if the Soviet, <laughs> yes, <laughs> as was then, um, thought it wasn't in? The... So obviously I'm, I'm joking when I say that I know what the right answer is, but I think you can certainly make a case, and it's made 
I would say eloquently in the book, Mister. Yes. Available. Who from, wrote that? Uh, Rory Smith. Excellent writer. It's available Excellent. from the Amazon second-hand bin, <laughs> um, basically, and also from my house where there's lots of copies that haven't been sold. Uh, the I don't know where you would go to get it cheaper. <laughs> no, I will literally give it to you. <laughs> just just ring the doorbell. Just knock on my door and I will give you a copy. <laughs> Won't say a word. Just hand it. <laughs> the um, you can make a case that that the '66 World Cup win came at at a point when English football was starting to realise that it, it had fallen behind the continental game and was starting to adapt newer ideas. It was, there was a kind of post-war malaise in England, which was odd because obviously the continent was a lot more affected by the war than England was in, structurally. Um, but because attendances were really high in the immediate post-war period, uh, everyone kind of thought, well, we don't need to do anything, the game isn't changing, we're still the kings, blah, blah, blah. You then get the 53 defeat to the Hungarians, the 54 defeat to the Hungarians, uh, th- this sense that the continental powers are starting to catch and overtake England. England started losing games to foreign opposition. And in the early 60s, you have this this movement within England to say, look, we have to see what they're doing. I think after one World Cup, Billy Wright volunteered to stay out, and I think that would be Brazil in 1950. Billy Wright said he wanted to stay out and um, learn about Brazilian training methods because he felt that it would improve things with England. You had the Europe, start of the European Cup when English teams weren't initially involved but then kind of weren't the powerhouses they thought they would be Real Madrid were um, there was a gathering sense that English football was not quite in the position that it thought it was and then you get 1966 so obviously in 66 English football win, England wins the, win the World Cup and English football thinks ah, everything's fine we're, we're, we're back on top that wasn't the case and what happens in, this, in the following the 1970 World Cup when England doesn't qualify for a tournament for, for a decade is is kind of indicative of that strain of thinking that England failed to develop. So I think the case that I make in Mister, and it's not necessarily conclusive, obviously, is that if England hadn't won the World Cup in '66, that process of modernisation would have happened, and England would have been more competitive for the for the well right up until the modern day. To be honest, that it would have been a current power rather than a nation that felt itself. So we got complacent. We, we won something and thought, right, yeah, it's not as bad as we thought it was. We're okay. And I think there was if there was a risk that in 2018 you might get the same thing that mm. there was a, that sense of euphoria around Russia. It, I worried at the time that well, I say worried. I don't care that much about England, but <laughs> it occurred to me at the time that you might almost if they'd made the final say and lost, or if they'd made the final and won, you would have there would have been the sense that oh we we have now reached the end of our journey, when in fact the journey is only just beginning. And '66 was quite similar to that in that. There was, a, there was a change taking place within English football. Different tactics were being uh, experimented with. You had the review plan and you had people like Matt Gillies at Leicester who were playing different formations and doing different things and trying to change English football. Even Alf Ramsey, the winless wonders, that was a total shift from, from how English football had traditionally been played. And then they don't win the World Cup and it makes all of that stop. Mm. So I, 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 th- I think I stopped short. I think I had it in one of the drafts for the book. And then thought, no, that's a stupid thing to say. It will annoy people. But you can make a case that winning the World Cup in 1966 was the worst thing that happened to English football. And it might have had a knock-on effect to the West Germans at the time, who finishes the runners-up four years later. But if they'd won the final, would they have become complacent? Would they have yep. thought, we've cracked it? And it wouldn't have given them the, init- the incentive to push on into a more dominating period during the, the 70s and 80s perhaps yeah, so well, you know, the, the converse could have been true well, you, you, and then you have the effect on potentially that Bayern Munich team that won three straight European mm-hmm. Cups which was the dominant force in, in Europe at the time and 
yeah, how that would have been affected by winning things. Does it, I mean, it sounds stupid, but winning tournaments does feel naturally like an end of something. Yeah. And it's it, the hardest thing for any country or team to do is to continue winning. And England basically won and thought, right, that's it. We've proved, we've proved our point. We don't have to think anymore. I suppose with coaches, whether it be nationally or domestically, they have to look for what the next phase is going to be, no matter how successful you are. Like Guardiola at Man City, you think he's always looking for, let's get better, let's get better. Okay, we can win it this season, but that won't be the same next season. They've got to constantly, so they don't fall into that trap of getting complacent. Winning doesn't mean that you can keep winning for the next 10 years. You have to keep evolving. Yeah. And English football basically didn't. No, it didn't. It, it just stuck they with thought we actually cracked it. We, we, yeah. we, we've cracked the code. But we've won the World Cup. We don't need to do anything. It we just keep ticking over. Because just prior to that, they were starting to get that message. Mm. And that message stopped because of winning and yeah. that that was the crucial sliding doors moment that had England not won in 1966 the uh, the extra information the opening of their minds would have continued to a point that it would have been a much better foundation for the modern era than perhaps winning the 1966 World Cup was because as you say they stopped all the pro- progress stopped and everything went back to square one they so had why to did learn you put it in the book again. it's such a really interesting concept something I've never no, heard I, I, before I put, but it the, was I put the argument in the book yeah. I just didn't want to say I, didn't, I, don't, I don't think I can't remember if I wrote it or not I, I was really wary of saying you can, even you can make the case that winning even the World Cup was the wor- just the one thing that I didn't put in was that it, was, it could have been the worst thing that happened to English football oh, okay. I think I didn't put that in mm. Anyone but you've said it the book, on the podcast before so yeah, it's no, getting I, out I think it sounds, like, it sounds like the sort of thing that people would say is like click, clickbaity or sensationalistic but I think there is a genuine discussion to be had there that it came at just the wrong time if they'd won it in 62 it might have been totally different or if they'd won it in 1974 which they didn't even qualify for then again it might have been totally different and would have had another knock on effect because you then wouldn't get the total football revolution which means you don't get Cruyff which means you don't get Guardiola blah 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 but yeah, I think 66 was just, the, it was exactly the wrong year because it was such a sort of nascent pro- process and England had been so reluctant institutionally to embrace it that it just set everything back and it's not until, you saw a lot of the stuff in the build-up to Liverpool Red Star game a couple of weeks ago that, um, that it was playing Red Star in 1973 that convinced Shankly and Bob Paisley that Liverpool had to change the way they played in Europe and it was, there were individual instances of that where in Matt Busby, you know, it, United won, went and won the European Cup in 1968. But the, so there were instances of coaches and clubs working out that there, that there were things they had to do. But as a whole, English football looked at the 66 World Cup win and thought, right, we, that, that we have completed this, we're done. The other thing, of course, without 1966, the history of jingoistic terrorist chants could have been so yeah. very different. Mm, yeah. And that would have been a happy byproduct. Exactly. It's funny that you mentioned Holland because... What if Holland had won the World Cup in Ooh. either 74 or 78? The reason I ask that That's is because a great one. the total, total football, the revolution happened. Cruyff was the pinnacle, and you, you mentioned everything, the coaching tree that's come from Johan Cruyff's influence. So that, that happened even though they didn't win. And I know Ajax did win mm. a lot, and that might have helped mitigate this point. But what if Holland had won? Would well, everybody be playing that way? No, I, th- I, I suspect, the, I don't know. It's a great question. I suspect nothing. I suspect Holland's... Holland, like Hungary in 54 and like Brazil in 82, Holland 74 is, and 78 is the answer to the question that, or the assertion that history only remembers the winners. It doesn't. History, mm. history remembers those teams as fondly as it remembers the teams that beat them. And people, more people talk about Brazil 82 than Italy 82. The, just that Italian side was really good, but it didn't change the way anyone thought about football. But the, um, the, the effect that Holland had was totally irrelevant whether they won the tournament or not. The, the, the thought was so good, the concept was good, that ultimately history bore the Dutch out. The Dutch were right. That was how we should be playing football. Mm. And it, it, but it filtered only down to teams that were good enough to do it. Just because you admired, the, whether, whether they won or, or not, you admired the way they, 
went about their business, I'm yeah. sure, but that didn't necessarily mean you'd have been able to replicate mm. it in the way that currently, much as we might admire the way that Manchester City and Liverpool are playing, or Burnley, Southampton, West Ham, much as they'd like to, simply know that that's beyond their capabilities. Uh, next thing's also World Cup related. What if the Maradona handball was given? Would much have changed? Would his... I suppose the attitude that we have towards him, I say we, this Brit- very British parochial You two are very attitude. bitter about Maradona. I was very bitter at the time because I was about seven years old and I was watching it Did at my grandma's cry? house. And I was No, yeah, I, no I turned to anger rather than tears. Use your fists yeah, yeah, rather than tissues. Yeah, but yeah. I got told yeah. off for it well. Rory takes that, that, that moral high ground from the position of not being quite old enough to have been mentally scarred by it. Because I was eight at the time. It was a pretty hard footballing lesson to learn. But you'd have been, what, a, three it, or four? I was four. I, I'd say it's so a vital life lesson it. to learn, Steve. Yeah, well, sometimes go. cheats win. Yeah, which, which you, was not a lesson that you were perhaps quite conscious enough I to would say learn at the that, time. And I, I, I feel as I'm, t- uh, as I'm talking too much, like in the early episodes... You've never talked too much. You're an excellent uh, talker. The, Continue. That Argentina would sort of beaten them because they were better at football than England. Uh, we would talk a lot more about Maradona's what was Maradona's second, second goal. goal yeah. he, maybe he would have done that twice uh, and England would still have lost the quarter-final and all it would mean was would be that the English wouldn't have this weird sense of, of sort of victimisation that they seem to nurse at international level and wouldn't have another little bit of that to, to ban on about endlessly for 30 years. Although at that point in Argentina's history they felt a very large sense of victimisation because of what had happened four years previously. Did. So there, there was, although that, that is slightly more geopolitical than just being annoyed by a handball but Maradona's the perception we have of Maradona is framed around that incident for mm. us. For Argentina, it's not because that's just part of the game. You find ways to win. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't matter. So, well, I don't know actually. What, how don't how know. much would it have changed the legend that is Diego Maradona because of that part of his, his of his story? There was, I guess, there was enough with Maradona elsewhere to that it would have been. That's still seen as kind of. I think that's still seen as his great. That, that that game was the two sides of Maradona. It was yeah, brilliant. Exactly. Yeah. The second yeah. is the goal, and I think that's the same well, in Argentina. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we don't remember the Belgium semi-final because yeah. he scored an amazing goal in Belgium semi-final. But oh, well, England has stopped watching by that <laughs> yeah. point. Well, we, yeah, yes, we don't well, remember. Other well, people, do. the Belgians well, are probably quite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're annoyed. They didn't get a handball, so that people don't mention it as much. The but but I, I do think it is significant for Maradona because in the same way as we discussed with David Beckham mm. and Gaza earlier, that. That shows the two sides, doesn't it? it, it, it in, the, in the case of Gaza and Beckham, you know, the, the negative moments catapulted them further into the wider national consciousness, not just those who followed football. And with Maradona, the handball goal demonstrated that sort of win-at-all-costs mentality that was part of what made him such a great player. It wasn't just about being incredibly skillful, technically excellent, weaving through defences and scoring wonderful goals but you had to have that edge as well mm. that mental strength and not only doing it but getting away with it and spending decades pretending that it was the hand of God rather than the hand of Maradona is obviously what gave him the kind of resolve to, to make him the player that he was I also think the fact that he dubbed it the hand of God is quite important because that, that, that really kind of yeah. that phrase stuck so much and it had such resonance and it said so much about what what he did in the context of the second goal as well, it, it just it's such a great phrase that I think if he just said what a player would say now, which is 
uh, I'm not sure. I, I felt like it hit my head, which is what a player, which is exactly what a player would say now. Or even, yeah, I think it probably was a handball, but you know, the referee didn't see it. Um, then it maybe wouldn't have had the incident wouldn't be quite so much. But, but the yeah, fact that he called it, grandeur at the very least. Yeah, the hand of God just made it just some you know this little sort of diabolic figure citing the hand of God, equating himself with the divine mm. was was just so Maradona that it really kind of that bolstered his legend. I think that's to- yeah. that's yeah. totally right. There's loads of these. This is quite a good subject. I've the other thing about that, for, just from a commentator's point of view, by the way, it also contributed to, for me, the greatest single line of football commentary ever from Barry Davis on the second Maradona goal, where he says, you have to say, that's magnificent. Now, standalone, that fits perfectly with the goal. Mm. But in the context of the handball goal that came before it in the sense of injustice, the way he phrases it, is absolutely outstanding because it's sort of laced in some ways mm. with the bitterness of what came before yeah, whilst yeah. acknowledging that you have to dop your, doff your cap to a moment of genius which almost transcends what came before it. Mm. And, and that, that, abil- that, that skill of phraseology mm. that Barry Davis had, we would not have perhaps got that moment if we hadn't yeah, had yeah, the, yeah. the handball goal that preceded it. Do you feel that in some way that second goal suffers because Steve Hodge was involved in it? <laughs> I was going to say Terry Fennick, but if you want to say... Take away some of its brilliance. A little bit. Do you think? Yeah, so yeah. If it ghosted past me, yeah. it would have been an even better goal. Can you imagine? Yeah. You'd have yeah. taken him out like you did... That Paul, was it Paul Pescasolino you did? Yes. Similar to Maradona. Old double P. Chop him down. Chop him down. Um, the last one that I have to, to bring to bear is the Zidane headbutt. Right at his final game of his career, mm-hmm. I mean, he was a legend, he remains a legend. What he's done since as manager of Real Madrid clearly helps to resurrect our feelings of compute, complete purity in the man's achievements. But did that, what if he hadn't have headbutted Marco Materazzi in the final of the 2006 World Cup? In terms of the context of the game or in terms the of game, how we feel about how Zidane? how we feel about Zidane. Do we, we clearly don't feel the same way about him as we do about Maradona because he didn't affect the English nation, presumably, as much. Basically, but I actually, I quite it. liked <laughs> what Zidane did there. Did you? I have a grudging admiration for him because he was such a... The way that he played, it was as if the game was so easy to him and he was so brilliant that actually he showed himself... To, and it was a strange kind of headbutt as well. It wasn't yeah, a classic... Chest. Did you play against Zidane? Headbutt. He would probably remember more than me. Um, <laughs> not sure that I did, no. But ask, ask Double Z yeah, and he might wave. Yes, totally of course I did. He, he totally dominated me, that lad. It was... Well, it, surely we're missing the, the Drake's landing doors moment with Zinedine Zidane, which is what if he'd signed for Blackburn? I mean, clearly. What, in the early 90s? Yeah, they went for... I think it was the choice between him and Tim Sherwood. Or I, there was, there's this story that... Black, there's, there's lots of stories about... <laughs> Well, as soon as you said "what if," my immediate reaction was "what if Arsene Wenger had signed all the players he nearly signed <laughs> he during his lots career, of players. which was about forty-seven <laughs> players, all of whom sort of won the Ballon d'Or." And obviously, the answer to that question is Arsenal would have been, would probably have won more Premier League titles. But there's a couple of ones that that are genuine, and that's Maradona to Sheffield United, which was really? Alex Sabaya, who would go yes, on to be Argentina yes, manager, yeah. recommended Maradona to Sheffield United allegedly. Uh, they tried that, to... Uh, what, what era? It's late 70s, when he was at oh, Ar- right. Argentinos so, so Juniors. Before he came to Europe. Argentinos. Uh, the, yeah, before he came to Europe. The, I so they weren't thinking of signing him from Barcelona, for example. No, I think that was... <laughs> the Bramall Lane power, power base didn't think they could do that. Um, no, I, th- I can't remember if the story is that Sabaya recommended him or whether they'd gone to watch Sabaya and someone offered them Maradona and they said no. But the other one is... Um, that Blackburn looked at Zidane when he was at Bordeaux in 94 or 95 and 
decided that they didn't need him because they had Tim Sherwood. Uh, and I probably felt that this, this lad's got a headbutt in him. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave him alone. That might be at yes. some point in the future. Well, they presumably yeah. spotted that Sherwood was both a better midfielder and would turn out to be a better manager. And also retain his hair yes. a lot better. Uh, but That's, no, that has to be a subject for a pod as well. These great non-transfers. Non-transfers, yeah. Yeah, because Ronaldo, was there anything with Ronaldo with to Arsenal. Ronaldo to Arsenal. Yeah. Okay. There is a great graphic that I've seen several times on Twitter, which is got some high-profile transfers from the mid-1990s and Zidane went from Bordeaux to Juventus mm-hmm. and around about the time that Juventus signed Zidane was when Andy Booth joined Sheffield Wednesday <laughs> really? and Sheffield Wednesday paid more for Andy Booth than Juventus <laughs> paid for Zidane. And you're telling me that's wrong? Come on, Boothy. Big money. <laughs> Do we have any more? What about the Premier League? What if the Premier League hadn't come into existence? Would something have always come into existence that's, at that that's point in time? next book, <laughs> which yeah. I haven't yet to write. I was going to say exactly the same thing. What if May 1992, mm-hmm. Alan Sugar hadn't got on the phone to Sky and said, blow them out the water yeah. in reference to ITV, who had tabled a bid to... Have the exclusive because Alan Shearer wanted new... Sky to sell more. Not Alan Shearer. Sa- Sorry, Alan Shearer. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> knows. <laughs> who, who knew? <laughs> Everybody knows. Alan knows that Alan Shearer at that point was at a crossroads. Shall I leave Southampton to go to Blackburn, yeah. or shall I continue making my Amstrad Sat- satellite, satellite dishes, dishes and decoders? <laughs> yeah. The, I think in answer to Chinch's question, th- this the modern vision of football would always have come to pass at some point, just as the way the the, time of the media landscape and the television yeah, landscape yeah. has gone. Um, you have to trace that back to 1987, fully enough. There's a there's a good sliding doors moment of what if Napoli were not drawn at home to Real, or against Real Madrid in the first round of the European Cup in 1987, which was the game that inspired Berlusconi yeah. to think we can't we need waste this later these, on in the competition. These yeah. ties I'm now on. going to find out what number episode that was where we discussed that. Yeah, uh, that was, <laughs> was the one of the summer ones. It was, one of the summer yeah. ones. It was the filler episode. <laughs> they're not filler episodes. They're they actually in went depth down very well. episodes. The just there, there is that moment, but the, yeah. In, so in terms of the eighty-four, Premier, eighty-four, the 84. Premier League would always have happened. But the but Steve's right. What if Sugar hadn't or Shearer, whoever hadn't? <laughs> but I mean, it's debatable. Con- Again, an arguable point. Convinced Sky yeah. to get involved in the bidding because the, it, it, the Premier League is a, is a construction of Sky as much as anybody else. Mm-hmm. So if it had, had been on ITV, it probably wouldn't have been quite such a. In fact, it definitely wouldn't have been. It would not have been the phenomenon that it is today. That's a re- that was a really important phone call. Probably more important than any, the phone call he made to agree to host The Apprentice. Or the phone call that he made to make sure that Andy Hinchcliffe didn't sign mm. uh, for Spurs. Mm. Uh, we'll finish on that. What if Andy Hinchcliffe had had self-belief and functioning knees? What would have happened? <sighs> Who knows? Who knows? Self-esteem's so a big thing, you know. The whole I'd point of this podcast is to I? I answer that question. Apparently, I think AC Milan... We're interested in signing no, for Mighty Chinch. Have, have we heard this before? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're like Arsene Well, not mentioned the United <laughs> connection. That's blown your tiny mind. No, I just it? never, it never, I never put. I think you have mentioned that. You've before. You've mentioned it before, but, but you never I mentioned never, the year. I think I never worked out that it it might have changed the course of history. Oh, it's clearly not going to be later in my career when they can clearly see how bad I was. They're not going to spend money on me after two or three years. You've got to buy me in the first six months when all the potential is there. Once you start playing regular games, you're awful. Do you think you would have been more a better? Well. On, no, sorry. Do you think you would have kind of had an even better career had you worked under Fergie? An even better career than the one that I had. Yeah. That is really so difficult. Jo- isn't it? Joe Royal mm. got you out of the the doldrums, sprinkled him oh, and Willie, sprinkled say doldrums, some, yeah, okay. yeah, um, some magic dust over you and oh, made yeah. you into an oh, yeah. international. Yeah, Fergie was very good at man managing. Do you think he would have been able to sprinkle his not own necessarily, version? Not necessarily. You have to go to United to be a better player. Probably would have helped. Mm. But again, just feeling how you do about yourself. 
is the most important thing. You can be a better version of yourself if you feel differently. But I'm so wherever, wherever I played, spotted that and would have maybe. been able to get that out of you. Or maybe I wouldn't have had a choice. He'd have beaten it out of me. Mm. <laughs> That's true. That sounds like a soccer story, which uh, quite fittingly now leads us on to the final oh, okay. section of the show, mm. uh, which is never mind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. Uh, this is when Andy tells the tape from his playing days. Well, I'm behaving like we're deep root. What? <sighs> Just too many consonants. Just thought I'd get rid of them. Okay, Sheffield Wednesday, late 90s. Mm. There was some great Italians great in Italians. the Hinchcliffe team. Benny Carboni was there. Paolo Di Paolo Canio. Anybody else of the Italians that you can maybe think of that... Maybe only played five games, signed by Ron Atkinson. Position. Centre forward. Your pr- First name. Frankie. Dottori. No, no. Goes to Hollywood. No, Frankie Sonetti. Oh. Now, th- I feel really bad now because I actually watched the one goal he scored for Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, he only made five appearances. When he first arrived, I did think he was Paolo Di Canio's driver. I didn't actually realise he was a footballer because he was so bad. But again, it's one of these Ron signings. Gotchi Sedlowski, another centre-half with dodgy knees and Macedonian centre-half. Again, never played at all, I think, for Sheffield Wednesday. All these kind of odd signings. And Frankie Sonetti joined. And I did think he was a driver. Then he started training. And I thought, oh, I think he probably is a footballer. And he actually came on. <laughs> Not a Premier League The footballer. only game. He played, made five appearances. The only goal he scored. We were at Hillsborough. It was the end of May. Uh, 1998. So I'd only been there six months. So the end of the season, basically... Not too much we'd, we'd managed to stay up miraculously and he's come off the bench and he scored actually a really good goal we, we were 3-0 down at home at the time to and uh, to Aston Villa and he's he's dropped his shoulder and he's bent the ball into the top left hand corner with his with his left foot it's a great goal I watched it back on YouTube this morning but I do remember from that game because we were 3-0 down at the end of the season he scored and basically all the English British players just turned around and trudged back to the halfway line. The only people celebrating, Frankie Sinetti went down on his knees in front of the cop, <laughs> who again were just sat in their seats because that makes it 3-1 with one minute to play. The only people celebrating the goal were Benny and Paolo Di Canio, who came streaking across and probably thought, our chauffeur has scored. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. Our teammate <laughs> has scored. And we, we just, and after the game, he was in floods of tears because he was so emotional about the fact he'd played and scored. And we just couldn't give a monkeys. And isn't that really sad? Yes. But it was the stage of the season, the stage of the game. And, but it was a really good goal. If you get a chance to have a look at it, Frankie Sinetti, May 1998. It is a great goal. But we just couldn't be bothered celebrating with him. Uh, all the Italians basically stuck together. And they probably had meatball pasta afterwards to celebrate. <laughs> I don't know what they did. But we, maybe <laughs> that's the problem between yes. the British players and the Italian yeah. players then. Because we just couldn't, we just couldn't care less. But this, this poor lad was down on his knees, crying, weeping, tears of joy because he managed to score. And we were just basically pushing past him to get to the showers. <laughs> it's really sad, that, isn't it? And again, another, another reason I feel really bad. I mean, these stories I tell, again, I need to find out where he is. Apparently, he might still be playing. He can't still be playing, can he? We're trying to find out where... I'm we, sure he went back we, to Italy. We've Googled Francesco? enough on this, uh, on this podcast. We need so to maybe try and find out where he is. It. Again, another person that I feel as though I let down badly during my time at Sheffield Wednesday. <laughs> oh, Do you remember the, the Paolo Di Canio game where he pushed over the, the, yeah. the, the referee? There was a guy who played, Juan Cobian, played in central midfield. I don't even remember him. <laughs> That's because you were too concentrated on And I played about 20 boots. games with him and he played in that game in central midfield. So literally, how far away would he be? 10 yards away. And I had to... Google it and see what he looked like. I couldn't remember him. I but he played a, in that game. How I, bad's that? I'm going to pitch to Sky a documentary series in which, and in fact, listeners, if you want to watch this documentary series, then please write to Sky and ask for it, which Chinch 
revisits all the people he wronged during his career. I've wronged so many people. Isn't, that, isn't My Name is Earl? Isn't that, wasn't yeah, there a TV yeah, show yeah, where yeah. he goes back over his life and apologises? My to Name is Chinch. My Name is Chinch. And, and just apologise. And there's so many. I, I'm going to make a list. I say, but Juan Cobian and Frankie Sinetti, I apologise here and now so for my behaviour. Another part of that documentary is to try and remember all the players that Chinch has forgotten that he offended. Yes. <laughs> that, well, there's probably, that would be less, there's probably yeah. even more there. They'd the be coming out of the woodwork, wouldn't they? The first three episodes is just going to be him compiling a list. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Great story. Uh, we leave with a reminder of how to get in touch <laughs> at Setpiece Menu or Setpiece Menu at gmail.com, facebook.com forward slash Setpiece Menu. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review. Reviews, please. Another reminder reviews, please. As we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, to Rory, to Andy, and to you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back with another Setpiece Menu for you to enjoy very soon in episode 102. Mm. And definitely not episode 100. I think it's fair to say. That's quite good, that what if thing. What if mm. Thierry Henry hadn't signed for Arsenal? Yeah. Are we inviting contributions? Oh, we're going to get loads on that, surely. Well, I hope we do now. Yeah, because <laughs> otherwise... They've bigged it up. Yeah. We will do. Our, our, our listeners are very creative. Just, just a couple a couple of emails to Hugh there's would quite suffice as loads. There's a lot of them in Melbourne. I wonder what that is. Should we go to Melbourne? I've never been to Melbourne. Oh, is it nice? Yeah, yeah it's if very nice. Happy yeah, to, excellent. to get a kitty and provide us with several first-class flights on a Middle Eastern airline. Would the Melbourne victory not... I don't know if you, did, you refer to them as the Melbourne victory. Oh, I don't or know. Just Melbourne Melvick. victory. Melvick. Melvick. Yeah. Chinch, uh, how do you spell Sinetti? How do you spell Sinetti? Yeah, I can, I can S-A-N-E-T-T-I. E-T-T-I. Put Francesco Sinetti in there and see what comes I up. I put yeah. Frankie Sinetti in and he offered me the local Frankie we, and Benny. Yes, <laughs> and that happened to me as well, yeah. yeah. He might well be working there. Yes, he's only 39 years old. Where's he playing? He can't still. Current team, Colaferro Calcio. Sorry? 1937. That's a restaurant. Um, this is a, it's a, it's based in Colaferro. Has he got his goal what up level? there? What level do they play at? They play... They'll be in... Are they Serie D or They'll something? They'll be C1 or C2. Is there a Serie D? Oh, I don't even know. Yeah, Do they no, have to create a league? No, they are non-professional the league. So Echelenza. Oh, Echelenza. In the like Latium region. Yeah, that, that's... Maybe um, we should go and, go and speak to him. This Maybe is we should a, this see whether... Be, this would be a film. Whether he would remember me. Should we go this and see him? It would be a bloody him? film. I think so, yeah. This, it's like just like... It's the trip and football combined. Yeah. A bit it's like Philomena. No. No, that's... You didn't run him that Completely different. We're, we're coming up with loads of ideas that other people are going to pitch to commissioning producers and claim credit for. So, Should we uh, set up our own production house? Everything that we have said in this podcast, we copyright. Yes. Can I sit in Is a big legal? leather? Yeah, can I sit in a big leather chair next to a roaring fire with a, a side table with a, maybe a brandy on it, and Frankie Sinetti and I can chat about old times? <laughs> no. First of Why all, not? you don't drink alcohol, so you wouldn't have yeah. a brandy. And second of all, he's still a player, so brandy might not be part of his diet either. Also, Latium is. Towards the south of Italy, so it'd be very hot. Don't need a roaring fire. What do you mean, still a player? He was playing. Yeah, but current club at Sheffield. I'm not sure Uh, he was at Sheffield. I convinced he was a chauffeur. Chinch, I think you'll find that history has lasted a bit longer than yours. It has, (laughs) but at what level?